Welcome back, episode three, guys. I'm really excited that it's episode three. So if you're just tuning in, this is Murder, Mystery, and History. My name's Christy. And I want to preface this by saying this episode's going to be out a lot sooner than prior episodes. I just felt like the last episode I did wasn't up to snuff or my standards. And I don't think that's fair to you guys. So, this is kind of a bonus episode, if you will. And it's the murder episode, right? Okay, so let's get to it. I'm gonna say, though, if you have a trigger for sexual assault, this is not the episode for you. This is a very brutal episode, and pretty brutal things happen. So, if you have a trigger for sexual assault, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't want you to listen to this. Let's get into it, shall we? We're talking about the Scarborough Rapist, the Schoolgirl Killer, the Witch of Ontario, the Ken and Barbie Killers. These are not names I gave this couple. These are names that were given to the couple by the press. And I will say, if this ever reaches your ears, Carla, you should have stayed in prison. You're an absolute monster. Let's get to it. Back to the show. So I'm talking about Paul and Carla Bernando. I'm going to refer to them as Paul and Carla. I'm not going to bother with the last name. So it would be very interesting to me if you were born and raised in Canada and you did not know the story of this couple. It would be very interesting to me if that were the case, because this was pretty well known. I was talking to my husband about this, and I had said the same thing to him, and he said, yeah, well, maybe people in the younger generation might not know, but our generation, we, we know. That doesn't make us sound old, I don't know what does, but we're not old. So, this was a case that rocked Canada. People were so shocked by what they were seeing on their TVs, what they were hearing on the radio, what they were reading in the newspaper. It was just intense. It was intense. It was brutal. A lot of things were just messed up. Batshit crazy, if you will, about this case, because... If we're being honest, this is, this is, this is crazy. And I thought I was well versed in this until I started doing a little bit more research. And I'm sure that I've only gotten the tip of the iceberg here. So both Paul and Carla were raised in Ontario. I'm going to talk a little bit about Paul's childhood right now. This, this will make sense L later on. So Paul found out, I want to say, at a very formative age, probably somewhere around 10 to 15, maybe younger, if somebody knows the answer, and I am wrong, please email me, murdermysteryandhistory at gmail.com. He found out that he was the product of an affair between his mother and a former lover. He began to degrade his mother 
whenever he saw her. He would call her bitch, whore, slut, tramp, etc. But what really would set this off with his mother calling him a bastard, this is what she always responded with. And this is something that just he couldn't handle. This was the one thing. If you called him a bastard, he would take it personally. He always had, because I mean, really, he was a bastard, but um, he degraded women constantly. There was no ifs, ands, or about it. But we can kind of argue that this started with how he treated his mother. When Paul became 18 to 20-ish, ish, we'll say, mid-twenties, he would brag quite a bit about enjoying sadistic sexual encounters. He would often date multiple women at once because he couldn't keep a relationship. But that also was due to the fact that he was horribly abusive to his girlfriends, often stating, if you tell anybody what happens in our relationship, I will kill you. When he did go out on dates, he enjoyed degrading his dates in public about anything. Their weight, their height, their behavior, their hair, how they dressed, he enjoyed it. One of the, one of the other things he also enjoyed doing was having forceful anal sex on unsuspecting dates. What a catch, hey, ladies? In 1987, Paul met Carla. There was something different about Carla. She encouraged his behavior. She encouraged the sexual behavior. She would have been around 17 at the time and he would have been 25 when they met. Reports say that the day they met, they had sex that night, which I can't imagine somebody being so mean to you and then you being like, hey, let's hit the, the hotel room. Now, it was in 1987, I'm unsure if this was before or after he met Carla, but two women were granted a restraining order against Paul for obscene phone calls. The interesting thing is this could be argued that when these restraining orders were granted, he started raping women. From 1987 to 1990, Paul began stalking and raping women. Now, this, this happened, reports of this rapist were monthly, at least once a month. But the interesting thing to me, in, in the year 2021, 95% of rape courses, rape cases, pardon me, go unreported. I can't imagine what that number looked like in 1987 to 1990. How many rape cases were actually reported? Because I can tell you for a fact based on the statistic that I have just told you, not every single rape was reported it would be 95% of the cases go unreported. So to me, this would suggest that Paul was getting away with rape quite often. 
I think there's probably some victims who were raped that never came forward, that never came forward. So he would stalk these women and he would rape them, obviously. It's interesting to me that one of these cases of rape, another man was convicted. Later on, the man who had served time for this rape was released, was exonerated when Paul confessed he had been the rapist. Now, these were not, these rapes were gathering intensity and violence. One of the victims tried fighting Paul off and she ended up with stab wounds in her thigh. These stab wounds were so bad that she ended up needing to go to the emergency room. The media had started called media and the police at this time had started saying, women be careful. We have a serial rapist in Scarborough. And he became known as the Scarborough racist. It got rapist, not racist, but it wouldn't surprise me if Paul was racist. Um, he earned the nickname the Scarborough Rapist. And it got to the point where women were starting to get advised, like, you cannot walk alone. Like, this guy's stalking, hunting, preying on women. And it would, it, the ages, I believe, were from 17 to 25. And the really interesting thing for me, as I was researching this, is... In 1990, all these rapes that are going around in Scarborough, well, 1987 to 1990, Paul was a suspect. And he gave actual samples for the police to test. And they weren't tested properly. And what's interesting to me about this is a friend a friend's wife, like the friend was fall, friend was, the friend was a friend of Paul's. So Paul's friend, the friend's wife had said, I'm going to contact the police. And she contacted the police and she told them, Paul comes over here and he talks about these violent, awful things he does. It, it's sadistic in its nature. I think this could be the Scarborough rapist. And the most bizarre thing about this is the wife had called in and she had given all this information and the police had talked to Paul, considered him a more credible witness than she was, and he was let off the hook. And it's been said that the, the samples haven't been tested properly, but given what I just said, the police thought he was more credible than the woman who called in. I don't think they were tested. I could be wrong, and I, I, I mean, I might. I don't think I am. But that this is a theory. It's stated that they were, they weren't tested properly. We'll get there. This leads me to question: Had this have been tested properly, would the story have changed? Would the victim still be alive? Would this just be a story about a serial rapist?
it's hard to say. Now, after meeting Carla, Paul continued his behavior of degrading women. He would give Carla a list how to improve herself, down to what she ate daily, how she dressed. He often told Carla how fat and ugly she was. But why did she stay, you're asking? That's a question that I don't know. During the rise of the Scarborough Rapist, between 1987 and 1990, Carla actually knew what Paul was doing. Going so far as to... there, I don't know if this is true, but there is a theory going around that Carla knew what he was doing and Carla videotaped it. She watched it. As a woman, that disgusts me. As a woman, we're given tips. We trade tips. How to not get raped. And here is this woman knowing that her boyfriend is out there raping young women. And she's okay with that? Going so far as to watch it? Come on. The videotape thing. This became a signature move for the couple. They would videotape everything they did. Which is bizarre and stupid if you ask me. Like, why would you videotape it? Now there's evidence. I'm not condoning what they did. I'm just saying, why would you videotape yourself doing something like this? Now this is where the story takes... a really disturbing turn. And I, I I had a very, very hard time researching this and a very hard time, I will have a hard time talking about this and I am having a hard time. But that's, that's what this is. So Carla wasn't a virgin and this really upset Paul because he always wanted to be with a virgin. Carla wasn't an only child. She had a younger sister. Her younger sister, Tammy, was 15. Carla would have been about 20, year old, 20 years old at this time, and she was working as a vet assistant. Paul became obsessed with Tammy. And Paul and Carla at this point were living with Carla's parents and Tammy. It became easier to access the young girl for Paul. He began to peep into Tammy's windows at night. It got to the point where Carla broke all the windows in Tammy's room. So could so Paul could go in and masturbate to a sleeping Tammy. Yeah. It I can't even express how disturbed I am just speaking these words. It was in July of that year that Paul took Tammy across the border. This would have been 1990, 1989. And from his account, Tammy and Paul got beer, got drunk, and made out. 
Paul would have been around 27. This is a 15-year-old girl. Fifteen years old. And I want to press on that. Where the hell were the parents? I know it's one thing to say, well, we trust our our daughter's boyfriend turned fiance. Did they know what was going on? If they did, why did they let it continue? Paul and Carla were engaged at this time. And the really, really disturbing thing to me is Carla went out of her way to make sure Tammy was a virgin. She went out of her way to make sure her little sister was a virgin. Now, This is December 23rd, 1990. Tammy and Carla's parents slept upstairs. Carla laced a drink with sleeping pills and gave it to Tammy. Once she was unconscious, Carla and Paul undressed Tammy while Paul violently raped Tammy. Carla held a rag soaked with halothane stolen from the vet's office where she worked. Over Tammy's nose, over Tammy's mouth. Both Paul and Carla took turns raping Tammy. Both Car Carla and Paul took turns, raping her younger sister. <sighs> this whole thing was filmed, keep in mind. Now, at some point, Tammy had started to vomit, and Carla had held her down to clear her throat. Tammy stopped breathing. After trying to revive her, Paul and Carla quickly dressed Tammy and put her in her bed. Called 911. An ambulance came and Tammy never woke up. She died that night. Nobody, nobody thought it was interesting that these two spent that night cleaning the basement, vacuuming, bleaching. Nobody, nobody found this suspicious. Nobody, which is just bizarre to me. When typically when a death is suspicious, I shouldn't say suspicious. Well, this was suspicious. Usually when there is a death that is in good health and it was more like you don't know why they died. It just happened kind of thing child was under 18 you know like there, there's a whole 
a whole list of things that if it's suspicious, if there's poisoning, accidental deaths, if it looks like it, it's a suicide, that kind of thing, the medical examiner will step in and there will be an autopsy done. Now, there was an autopsy done and there was a giant chemical burn on Tammy's face. The medical examiner ruled this as an accidental death, choking on her own vomit. This was the first autopsy to be done on Tammy. As a parent, I wouldn't have accepted the autopsy reports because that doesn't make sense. Why would there be a large chemical burn on her face? That's not normal. Now, when you're embalming a body that an autopsy has been done on, it's autopsies are pretty invasive for a lack of better words. If you've never seen an odd, you might have seen an autopsy body if you've ever been to a funeral that has a viewing. You just wouldn't know what to look for on the body. Usually with autopsies, there will be a T intersection on your chest done. And there are lots of things they'll take out of an autopsy. Pieces of your, well, the tongue. Um, if it's a full autopsy, they will take brain matter. It's usually to rule out what's causing the problem. There are various tissues. Parts of your spine will be taken. Well, actually the whole spine, pardon me. Um, it's very invasive and it's very, I would say, if you knew something was there or if it was accidental, autopsies generally will help you get to the matter, the heart of the matter. But it's interesting to me that this first autopsy, despite there being a large chemical burn on Tammy's face, nobody found any trace of chemicals, nobody found any trace of the sleeping pills. There is a large chemical burn on her face. That's not accidental. How would a 15 year old have gotten a chemical burn on her face? What did these monsters tell the police? And with burns, if the burn was still noticeable at the funeral, as per the open casket that her family decided they needed, then the burn would have been severe enough that cosmetics wouldn't have covered it. But it gets worse. At Tammy's funeral, Paul was noticed to be stroking her hair in the casket. That, that just it shivers down my spine. How fucking predatory is that? Paul and Carla also left notes and letters for Tammy in her casket saying how much they loved her, how much they'd miss her. Paul wrote a note saying, you love me like a big brother and I'll never forget your love. The couple also left invitations to their wedding 
in Tammy's casket. It sickens me. Sickens me. They left that shit in her casket. Two years later, a second autopsy was done on Tammy. The medical examiner noticed bruising on her body, a chemical burn on her face, and traces of halicoin, a sleeping pill. It took two years for their story to unravel. This is after the family found out what happened between Tammy, Carla, and Paul. They had taken everything from Tammy, or pardon me, everything Carla and Paul had written and put in her casket got destroyed. It was not to be buried with Tammy. Her family insisted on it. Thankfully. Now, in 1991, in June of 1991, Carla brought home a surprise for Paul, a friend from work. After, sorry, after Tammy had died, Carla and Paul moved to Port Dalhousie out of her parents' home because they thought it would be too rough to have the happy couple at her parents' home so soon after her sister's death. Back to June of 1991. A surprise for Paul. Jane Doe. In court records, her name was Jane Doe, which is the record I have because she was underage when this happened. But Jane Doe was in her teens and she was given a drink laced with halcoin, like Tammy. She lost consciousness and Paul and Carla filmed themselves raping her, taking turns. Jane Doe woke up the next day, unaware she had been violently raped. She left with her life intact. She was the survivor. Between this couple, she was the only survivor, which begs the question, why did she survive and not the others? Paul was a trained accountant. He lost that job. He began to smuggle cigarettes and contraband over the border to the United States. On June 15th, Paul met their next victim, Lacey Mahaffey. She was locked out of the house for missing curfew. Paul was out stealing license plates. He saw Leslie and offered her a cigarette. When she accepted, Paul grabbed the 15-year-old, pulled a knife on her, and blindfolded her. He drove to Port Dalhousie and told Carla they had a playmate. This was in the middle of the night, as Leslie missed her curfew kind of thing. Carla was asleep when Paul told her this. So instead of going, oh God, you, you kidnapped a young child. I should go see if she's okay. And I don't know, release her. Carla went back to sleep. Carla and Paul filmed themselves as they raped and tortured Leslie. 
She was murdered eventually. The excuse both of them gave was her blindfold slipped and Leslie saw the face of her attackers. I doubt that was the reason that she got murdered, honestly. I think Paul got too excited. Things went too far. And he liked it way too much. You have to understand, as I've mentioned prior, Paul loved degrading women. He loved it. What's the ultimate degradation for someone begging for their life and not gaining it? I think things reached a fever pitch and Paul wanted to do it again. I think they both liked it. Now, Leslie's dead. The next day, Carla's parents came for dinner. Leslie's body sat in the basement while, Car while Carla and Paul ate dinner with her parents. What eventually happened was she was later dismembered and encased in concrete and thrown in a lake. Leslie was found June 29th in Lake Gibson near St. Catharines, Ontario. Now, June 29th was a special day for Paul and Carla. That's the day they got married. Jane Doe, as if you recall from earlier on, went back over to Paul and Carla's residence in August of that year. Following the same technique with Tammy, she was raped again by Paul and Carla. Similarly, she stopped breathing. The same thing that happened with Tammy. Carla called 911, but was able to revive Jane Doe. And Carla called back to say, we don't need you, the crisis is over. We don't need outside intervention. What surprises me is nobody sat there and thought, it's interesting you called for an ambulance, we're just gonna send a police officer out just to assess the scene, make sure that like you guys are okay. And if help is actually needed, we can help them. Not one police officer showed up to their residence. This is baffling to me. And I don't know what police tactics were like in Ontario in 1987, but I, I was under the assumption that like, you called 911, someone's showing up and they're coming to talk to you. After school, April 16th, 1992, Paul and Carla were looking for their next victim. Remember, they got married June 29th, 1991. This wasn't even a year after Leslie's death. Christine French was walking home. Paul and Carla were driving around. Pulling into a parking lot, they pretended to need help. Paul and Carla got out of the car, asking for help with a map in their hands. Kristen looked at the map, offering to give them directions. It was at this point, Paul threatened Kristen with a knife and put her into the car. Over Easter weekend, Paul and Carla 
videotaped themselves raping, sodomizing, and torturing this girl for three days straight. Any survival mechanism I think that Kristen had went out the window by day two, day three. I think at the end of those three days, Kristen knew she wasn't leaving with her life. She started taunting Paul, calling him a bastard and told him she couldn't understand why his wife stuck around. Kristen was strangled, but before she was strangled, she was beaten severely. Paul took a cord and strangled Kristen. It took seven minutes for her to die. Carla watched. After this girl had died, Carla went to go do her hair for Easter dinner with her family. Kristen's body was left in the home. Before they disposed of her body, Carla washed Kristen's hair and cut it before dumping Kristen naked in a ditch in Burlington. The true irony here is where they dumped Kristen is close to where Leslie Mahaffey is buried. And it's interesting to me, Paul was actually interviewed in the case for Kristen's death. But guess what? He was considered an unlikely suspect. At this point, you're saying to yourself, what in the actual fuck did you just say? This is messed up. And it is. On December 27th, Carla was savagely beaten by Paul with a flashlight. She had both eyes were black. She tried telling her co-workers, oh, you know, I, I was in a car accident. Her parents eventually showed up and took her to the hospital. She claimed to be abused by Paul and she wanted to press charges. By absolute coincidence, samples from Paul were tested properly now. It was revealed he was the Scarborough rapist. Carla was living with her aunt and uncle at this point. She sang like a canary. She told police Paul was the Scarborough rapist the murderer of Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French. What do you think she wanted by giving this information? Total immunity. Total immunity. She didn't tell the police this when it happened. She didn't tell the police about her sister. She told them when it started unraveling and looking like Paul was going to get caught. She got 12 years in jail and took the stand against Paul. <sighs> Paul is sentenced to life in prison. He has been up for bail, I believe, twice now. And I believe the last time he was up for bail was... June of this year, maybe last year, it took the parole board all of 30 minutes to deny his claim. It is unlikely he will ever be granted parole. It is unlikely he will ever be able to live life outside 
of prison. As for Carla, this is baffling to me. This, I think, is the most fucked up part of this story. She's out of prison. She married the brother of her lawyer. She has three children. Multiple report reports account that she changed her name and she's living in Montreal. I read an article, I want to say five, six years ago, something like that. She was living in Montreal and somebody found out her name was Carla, Fernando, and she actually moved out of that city in Montreal because people were telling her what a monster she was and offering to do bodily harm. You can change your name as many times as you want, Carla. We all know you're a monster. An absolute monster. She helped rape and murder three girls. One of them being her younger sister. And she's out here allowed to live a life what possesses you to think, I'm going to help rape and murder young women? Not only that, your sister. You can change your name as much as you want, Carla. There's always going to be somebody who remembers you for the monster you are. You have to live with this the rest of your life. And I truly hope it haunts you. This is a hard story to tell. This is a this was a hard story for me to read because of how brutal it got because of how intense this was. This wasn't this wasn't easy. But I promised y'all a murder episode like Medusa go big or go home. We don't do easy topics, I guess, right? So this is the end. If you have any questions, comments about this, I'd love to hear them. If you want me to discuss any specific murder, let's do it, baby. If there's a mystery that you want me to delve into, I'm all over it. If there's a part of history that you love and you think it's a story that needs to be told, much like Medusa, let's do it. My name's Christy. This is Murder, Mystery, and History. Until we meet again.